This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome, everybody. Um, thanks for coming. Um, my name is Jeff Barry. I'm one of the uh, uh, orthoplasty surgeons here at UCSF. Um, this is our last um, session in the uh, aging bones and joints section of this mini-med school, so hopefully the other sessions have been uh, interesting for you guys. Um, we're going to talk today about uh, some modern advances in joint replacement and rapid recovery, so dealing mostly with hip and knee replacements. Um, so hopefully this is interesting, and uh, we'll, we'll have time for lots of questions at the end, so if you guys have them, just uh, hold on to them, and then we'll, we'll spend a lot of time at the end answering whatever questions you might have. Um, so I don't have anything to disclose for this talk. Um, about me, so I'm actually a Bay Area native. I came from San Jose. I went to Bellarmine for high school, and then I went across the country to Duke for undergrad, and then I've pretty much been at UCSF for the rest of my time, except for one year back in North Carolina for fellowship in uh, joint replacements at Ortho Carolina. But uh, I definitely uh, follow the motto of you can stay forever. I've been here, and I don't want to leave. Um, so an outline of what we're going to talk about today, um, just kind of the burden of disease and epidemiology surrounding joint replacements, uh, the basics of hip and knee replacement, and then also what's improved over the past decade in terms of not only the longevity of the replacements, but pain management, the, the acute hospital stay, um, some things like DVT prophylaxis or blood clot prophylaxis, and then just reducing risk associated with joint replacements. Um, so just a little question for you guys. What do you think is the most common inpatient surgery performed in the U.S. today? So there's two joint replacements on there, and then we got some uh, stents, percutaneous chorion ang angioplasty, that stents, um, uh, decompressing the spine for spine um, stenosis or appendectomy. And it's actually it's hip. You guys think hip? Knee, yeah, knees. So it's knees. Um, knees are number one, and hips is actually number four. So I got four, two of the top four that I do um, every day. And uh, uh, stents are number two, and laminectomies, so spine disorders, number three. So this is a super common surgery that's done in the U.S. That's a little bit of older data. But arthritis in general is a major cause of disability for uh, U.S. citizens, and about 22% of people have arthritis. Um, and it costs the U.S. a lot of money, um, not only for healthcare-related costs, but also for time if you consider lost work or um, things of that nature associated with arthritis and the inability to perform uh, jobs. And, and you can think of it as you know up to $2,000 per uh, person in the U.S. Uh, is the cost of arthritis every year. The number of joint replacements that's done every year is going up rapidly. Um, these charts are actually from 2007, but uh, we're right on track with those curves, on pace to meet about 3.5 million total knees done a year and about 570,000 total hips done a year by 2030. Um, so we're... we're right on pace with this, and, and that comes from a couple of reasons. There's increased utilization because we are an aging population in general, so more people are getting into that age range that are getting arthritis, but also the indications for arthroplasty or a joint replacement have been broadening a little bit. So with improvements in technology, we're a little more... Um, uh, 
we, we allow younger patients to have it done than we might have in the past because the, the successes have been so good. And then we also have a, in the younger population, increase in obesity, and, and arthritis is definitely associated with obesity. So with increasing weight, you get increasing uh, force on the joints, and it just doesn't do good for the cartilage. So why do we replace a joint? Um, I think the overall kind of umbrella term that you can think of for arthritis is, is for arthritis. That's what a joint replacement is for. But arthritis is a very broad category, so it covers a lot of different things. And it, at its most basic, it just means joint inflammation. Um, and joint inflammation, you can then stepwise go to joint pain as, as what arthritis is. But um, it's, it's really a disease of the cartilage, so the ends of the bone. Um, and as the cartilage degenerates, it causes pain, you can get limping, you get swelling in the joint, you get stiff or you lose your motion, and eventually you can start even getting deformity from that as a result of that cartilage being lost. So these are some x-rays of just the kind of deformity you can get. So on, the, on my side of the screen here, um, you can see a patient who... Um, this is a knee, this is their leg, and you can see how angled their leg is when they're trying to stand upright because they have kind of are losing the bone on the outside of the knee. Or this is a hip, so this is sort of a normal-ish looking hip here. And then if you look at the other side, you can see that they've lost a bunch of bone and they're kind of losing the, the, the shape of their hip. Um, so one way to think of arthritis is kind of like if you think of the end of a bone as a road, um, we all start off with kind of a smooth, well-paved road. The cartilage is nice and smooth. As we get a little bit of damage, you can start to get cracks in the cartilage or cracks in the road. Eventually those cracks can spread and become potholes where you actually have exposed bone as opposed to cartilage on the end of the bone. And when you get really bad, it kind of just falls apart. And this is really like what a joint can look like when you go in there. Um, and you've kind of lost all the cartilage. So um, arthritis, uh, as I think we've all, we all are aware, because we all know someone who has joint pain or arthritis, but it definitely can really affect your quality of life. Um, people lose their independence because of it, because they are not as mobile. Um, just simple things like just walking are, are difficult. Um, and, and as, as such, it affects people's mental health as well. Um, there's definitely a, a link between um, immobility and arthritis, severe arthritis and depression and other, other things that can get better if we're able to reverse those things. And then also family life, sleep, all these things. And anyone can get affected by arthritis. It's not a disease of the poor or the rich. It's not a disease of specific uh, countries. It's, it's really anyone can get it. It's kind of a universal problem. So um, overall causes of arthritis, things that can cause the cartilage to break down, these are the major categories. When you think of the most common, people uh, get it's called osteoarthritis. It just means arthritis of, of the bone. Um, and, and the best way to describe this is kind of wear and tear arthritis. So it's, if you've been really hard on your joints, that might be a reason that you have it break down. There's probably a genetic component, or there most definitely is a genetic component. It, it runs in families, but there's also people who have no family history of it who can just wear out their knee or wear out their hip. So the exact reason why someone might get it, someone not, we don't really have a good explanation for that um, in terms of osteoarthritis, but we know it is about a quarter of the population can eventually get that, um, especially as you get older. Um, other types of arthritis, inflammatory arthritis, this is things like rheumatoid arthritis um, or psoriatic arthritis, which are more of autoimmune diseases. They can cause cartilage to break down. Um, you can have an infection in the joint, an infection in the joint that causes the cartilage to break down. 
Another common thing that we treat is what's called osteonecrosis, or the bone actually dying, and that can be a result of loss of blood supply to the bone, and that, we'll talk about that in a second, but a lot of different reasons or ways that that can happen too. And then there's a smaller group of people who are sometimes the most um, disabled are the people with childhood or developmental diseases. So this x-ray is a, is a patient who um, I've actually replaced both their hips now, but this side is more of the wear and tear arthritis on this uh, left hip, um, which is probably the result of him using that leg almost exclusively because his right hip when he was born was dislocated. And so it developed in the wrong position, and as, as such, it's kind of never seen the normal stresses, never developed properly, and is, is quite painful uh, for him. In terms of how do we diagnose it, there's kind of two, two categories. You can have clinical arthritis and you can have radiographic arthritis. Um, radiographic or x-rays, um, you know, the, the best way to tell if someone's having arthritis is to look at the bones on the x-ray, and we're kind of inferring the cartilage through an x-ray. So an x-ray is really good at seeing calcified uh, bone. It's not very good at seeing soft tissue, so what we do is we're actually we're kind of extrapolating what the cartilage is looking like based on the space between the bones. So if you look at this x-ray here, you can see this black space between the bones. That's We're inferring there's cartilage. This is a fairly normal-looking x-ray. Um, what you can see on this one is that you've actually got some narrowing on the inside of the bone, uh, or on the inside of the knee, and that can be from the loss of cartilage that's kind of not holding the bones apart anymore. Um, what's interesting is um, this is the same patient, and it's this shows that how important the technique for radiographs are. This is the same knee, same patient, same day. One is just an x-ray that sometimes a primary care officer things will get where you're not actually standing on the leg. Your leg is just there, and you can get fooled into thinking that your knee is fine. And as soon as you add some weight and close down those bones together, it actually looks quite arthritic. Um, we generally, in terms of a, in a joint replacement clinic, MRIs are not very helpful for us. We don't, we don't really need them because that's not what we're looking for. And we can usually figure out what's going on based on the appearance of the bone and the appearance of the cartilage. So um, in general, we don't really need an MRI. It doesn't help us. And most of the things that MRIs are looking for, by the time you have arthritis, it's a little, the, the, the ship has already sailed. So meniscus tears and things like that, that's just part of the problem with arthritis. If your cartilage is worn away and you're touching the bones together, your meniscus or the cushions between the ends of the bone, they're already gone. So an MRI that says you have a meniscus tear, that's already, I can already tell that based on your x-ray. I don't need you to get that expensive test to come and see me. Um, so knee arthritis, this would be kind of a typical pattern is, is this, um, we call this varus arthritis, so, or you're losing the, the cartilage on the inside of the knee, so the, uh, this, you can always tell the inside of the knee on an x-ray by where the fibula is, this is the small bone on the outside of the leg, so this is the medial or the inside of the knee, and you can see that this patient has, has lost the space between the bones, the bones are almost touching, um, and that would be arthritis. So that's the radiographic picture. Now this person may have zero pain, may never have had any problems with their knee their entire life. Um, and so it's a, really it's a combination of what do the radiographs look like and then what is the patient experiencing or what, what are they having from a symptom-based perspective? Are they having that pain? Are they getting stiffness? Is it affecting what they're trying to do? Um, at, the, at the other end of the spectrum, you can have people with very mild arthritis who have very severe clinical symptoms of pain and, and disability. And so it's kind of a combination of these two that we have to look into. 
Um, hip arthritis is similar uh, to the knees. Um, we're looking at kind of the space between the bones. This person doesn't really have a, a great hip on either side, but you can kind of see a space between the bone here on this left side of the hip versus on the right side. They've lost all that space. They're getting some cysts in the bone, these little uh, dark circles. Um, the bone's getting sclerotic. That means it's getting hard and it's responding to the bones touching as opposed to having that nice smooth uh, soft cartilage on the end. Um, again, clinical signs of the hip, hip pain, uh, hip arthritis are typically groin pain. So um, when people complain of hip pain, that, that sometimes is very generic and doesn't really tell me much. To me, uh, an actual hip joint or this ball and socket joint is more of a groin pain. So um, if, I, if I kind of, it's more of this kind of orientation of pain, sort of deep. Sometimes people will talk about a C-shaped pain kind of going around the side or in the back, but... That's more hip pain. Um, pain that's kind of down the butt or down the back of the leg or pain on the side of the hip or on the very outside, that's generally not the hip joint and is something different usually. Um, this is an example of inflammatory arthritis. So this would be um, something like rheumatoid arthritis. You can just tell the x-ray is a little different. The, uh, it's more destructive in the bone, um, and you can sometimes get where of the cartilage in places that aren't really weight-bearing. So in a hip, we expect that the weight-bearing surface or this kind of top portion when you're standing is where you're going to get most of your wear and tear. If you're kind of wearing out the inside of the hip towards the middle, that tells us that it's not really a, a pressure phenomenon or a wear phenomenon. It's more of something's eating the cartilage away. So in this patient, their own uh, immune system is attacking their cartilage and eating the cartilage away. Um, this is kind of a, a little bit of a dying thing from a joint replacement perspective in orthopedics in general, as a lot of these uh, autoimmune diseases and inflammatory arthritis um, are much better treated with some of the biologic agents now. So this is kind of a less common occurrence than it might have been 10 years ago. Um, another reason, another thing we treat is people that have had prior, prior trauma. So if you've had a fracture, sometimes that... No matter how well it's put back together, sometimes the cartilage was injured at the time of the injury. And so you can have uh, eventual breakdown. Or in these cases, uh, this, this patient with the pelvis x-ray there uh, on, on my side, they tried to have a, uh, fix a fracture around their socket, around the acetabulum. Didn't work out, um, kind of failed. And so now you can see that that femoral head, the ball of the ball and socket, is kind of protruding through the pelvis. Uh, the other patient... Uh, is someone who had a, a fracture that was fixed when they were a kid, and they've just developed arthritis as they've moved on in life. Um, this is the other one that I was talking about earlier, avascular necrosis or osteonecrosis. Um, this is, if, of all the joints that are replaced in the hip, this is, accounts for about 10% of the, the diagnoses. So, you know, 85% or so are usually the just osteoarthritis, just the wear and tear, and then about another 10% are this osteonecrosis. And this is something that can sometimes happen happen to very young patients, um, and it's usually a result of some other insult to the bone um, that has to do with the blood supply getting to that ball. So the blood supply to the femoral head is pretty uh, precarious, and it's, it's um, easily disrupted. Um, it can be either from trauma, it can be from steroid use, um, and this is, this is steroid use uh, in, in the sense of medical steroid use, um, can be from HIV, both the disease and also the treatment. Um, heavy users of alcohol can get AVN. Um, and then uh, scuba divers, if you get uh, bent or you get a bubble, the nitrogen bubbles can cause AVN. 
Um, and then sickle cell anemia is one that uh, often causes our youngest hip replacement patients um, because they can also lose the blood supply to their femoral head. So uh, just last week I replaced a 17-year-old's hip because of this AVN issue. Um, childhood hip disease, This is we kind of talked about this a little bit, but people born with dysplasia or the hip out of the socket, um, people with, uh, this is probably someone who had what's called perthes, um, where the femoral head has kind of died. It's that AVN phenomenon when you're a kid, and then it kind of regrows in a kind of an odd shape. So lots of ways that you can uh, degrade your knee or your hip, but um, kind of the, the treatment algorithm is always kind of two categories, and it comes down to non-operative things and operative things. Usually by the time people have come to see a surgeon for this, they've kind of gone through at least some of the non-operative categories. Um, and it, it kind of, uh, you can break it down into there's drugs, there's uh, exercise, weight loss, there's um, gait aids or braces that can be used, uh, physical therapy to kind of improve the muscles around the joint, kind of optimize your mechanics so that you're not uh, putting too much stress on certain parts. All those things have a role, um, and they do uh, often work very well for patients for a long period of time. Um, of these, probably the most uh, most um, uh, the one that's going to help the most is weight loss, believe it or not. That's the one that's consistently shown to, to be the most uh, beneficial in terms of pain relief and in terms of being able to avoid joint replacements, but it's also one of the hardest. Um, these other things on the right, uh, glucosamine and chondroitin, the evidence for those is pretty poor. I think you guys had a talk by Dr. Lansdowne, if you guys were here, I don't know how many weeks ago, but uh, he was talking about like PRP or platelet-rich plasma and stem cells and all these things maybe in the future have a role, but as of right now, there's very limited uh, unbiased evidence to show that these have any ability to reverse the disease uh, of arthritis, which would be the holy grail for orthopedics pretty much. Um, Steroid injections and visco supplementation are some things that we can use to kind of temporize. And again, all these things are, are, are not going to reverse the cartilage being worn away, and they're not going to make it come back, but they can improve that clinical side of the arthritis picture. So the radiographs aren't going to get better, but the clinical, your pain and your function can Im improve. Um, so the surgeries that I perform, I, do, I perform knee arthroplasties and hip arthroplasties. Um, it's often very confusing because um, we have all these, these different terms and things, but not arthroscopy. Um, that would be a, a scope or a, more of a sports surgeon-type procedure. Um, these are full joint replacements or partial joint replacements of the hip and knee. So um, in the joint reconstruction division or the, the uh, arthroplasty service, that's really all I do is hip and knee replacements, um, two surgeries. Um, and then there's both primary, or the first time you're getting it done, and then there's this growing population of people who have failed joints that need redos so, or revisions. And so uh, academic centers like UCSF, we have a high percentage of people that have revision surgery. And it's about 30% of our joint replacements here, or is much less in the general population. So what is an arthroplasty? Um, an arthroplasty is, is, at its most basic, just a joint reconstruction. You can have an arthroplasty of any joint in the body, but the hip and the knee are the most common. Um, and it's replacing the diseased joint surface, the arthritis, with metal, um, plastic, and ceramic at its most basic. And I actually have some examples of those that I'll show you guys, and you can pass them around and actually feel um, what's going in patients. Um, the impact of this intervention is, is really unmatched, especially for a hip replacement. 
Um, hip replacement is probably the most successful surgical procedure that's done in all of medicine, um, both from a, in terms of the complication rate and then also in terms of the return to function and quality of life, um, and that's consistently proven. Knees are, knees are a little bit behind. Uh, we haven't quite perfected that as well as the hip, but um, not far behind. And the uh, amount of uh, quality of life improvement is, is really unparalleled for hip and knee replacement. Um, so this is a total hip replacement at its most basic. There's, there's really four components to a hip replacement in the modern hip replacement. Um, there's an acetabular component or a socket, um, and this is usually made out of titanium, um, and it usually has some sort of porous backing on it. So it's got pores or it's got a porosity to the metal that's similar to a bone. Uh, and the idea is that the bone cells actually grow into the metal or grow onto the metal in some, uh, some form, and then they're now attached to the implant. So after about six weeks, your bone is actually bound to this implant. Um, so this would be an example of one of those sockets. Um, inside the socket is then uh, usually a plastic liner. Uh, this is just, it's plastic, but it's a highly studied, highly manufactured piece of plastic. This is called highly cross-linked polyethylene. Um, and is probably the most technologically advanced portion of the entire implant, believe it or not, even though it's just this looks like a flimsy piece of plastic. Um, and that goes inside the socket and usually locks in. Um, and then this is kind of an immobile unit. So this is stuck in your socket in the bone. Um, after that, in the femur, there's usually a stem. So there's some sort of... Um, usually made of titanium as well, a stem that goes on the inside of the femoral bone. And again, just like the socket, your bone grows onto or grows into the femur. Um, this one is titanium. It, look, it doesn't look metal because it's got a coating on it. Uh, this is called hydroxyapatite. It's a, it's a molecule that bone kind of sees and likes to bind to. So this is just an augmentation. But this would be another example of, uh, of an implant with sort of a porous coating on it that's matching. So these go into the femur. And then on top of it is, is some sort of... Uh, femoral head replacement. So most of them are made out of either ceramic or cobalt chrome. Um, the ceramics are pretty much all ceramics in orthopedics for replacements are made by one company and they're all pink, um, where they say it's part of the process, but I'm pretty sure it's just to make them look different. But um, So all the ceramic heads are usually pink and then the alternative is a cobalt chrome head that looks like a piece of metal. So I'll just kind of pass these guys around so you guys can see them. These, these have not been in any patients or anything like that. So. <laughs> Well, they're quite light. A lot of people say, like, how heavy is this going to feel inside my body? You will not tell the difference. It, it weighs less than the bone that we're taking out usually. Um, the other thing a lot of people ask is if you'll set off metal detectors, and, and yes, you might. Um, there's no card that we give people anymore because people were just forging them, and then the card could be from any doctor, right? So usually people, if you're at an airport, um, TSA is pretty good. At, they'll, they'll either make you show your knee scar or they'll, they'll wand you there. Um, that's pretty much how they do it. Um, so that's that's a, the hip replacement, and I, can, I guess I can pass this around to you. But they don't, they don't fit together. You won't be able to click it together. But they do usually lock together. Um, Okay, the uh, fixation for a total hip replacement is usually cementless. So we're not using bone cement to hold these implants in. We're relying on your body to grow into it. Um, and that's because that's a much more durable construct um, uh, than cement in the long term, in the hip. The original hips were done kind of in the 1970s by this guy, John Charnley. Um, he's kind of one of the godfathers of orthopedics. Um, his, uh, his implant... Um, 
was a fully cemented replacement, and there's actually case reports of his patients who were very young still having their hip in 50 years later. So um, this is kind of to show how durable even these old um, replacements were and, and how successful they could be. Um, a modern total hip replacement, this would be what an x-ray looks like afterwards. So you can see that uh, stem uh, inside the bone. Um, this, would be, this is actually the, similar to the gray femur that you're passing around. Stem inside the bone, socket inside the uh, old socket. Sometimes we use screws to help hold that in place while the bone's growing into it. Um, and then you can kind of infer the, uh, the space where the plastic is based on this kind of halo around the metal head, or the ceramic head in this case. So the, the four main components. Now, total knee is a, a little bit different. Um, there's kind of, we break the knee up into compartments uh, instead, of, instead of parts. So there's a, a medial compartment, a lateral compartment, or inside-outside, and then patellofemoral compartment, or the compartment underneath your kneecap. The components are usually made of a little bit different metal than the hip. In the hip, we kind of can get away with not having any cobalt chrome. We can have all titanium. We can have all... Uh, polyethylene and ceramic, we can get rid of that cobalt chrome. Um, some of you may have heard of problems with cobalt and chromium implants. Uh, that's kind of been a bane of the orthopedic community from about a decade, 12 years ago. Um, there were some problems that happened when we were using cobalt chrome against cobalt chrome. So two metals together, the idea being that if you have two like implants that aren't having much wear, that maybe we can get away from the plastic wearing out and never having to redo the, the procedure. Um, the problem was that even the tiny molecular amounts of cobalt and chromium that were getting released were causing huge problems in patients to the, po to the point that pretty much all that implants have been recalled and they're all still having problems and we still revise them fairly regularly from ones that were put in 12 years ago. Um, so uh, cobalt chrome, we try to get away from it from the hip. In the knee, not, it has never been an issue and hasn't, hasn't been an issue, luckily. Um, the reason that we like cobalt chrome in the knee is it's a little bit of a harder metal, um, and so it doesn't have as much flex. Titanium, we want flex in a hip. We don't want flex in a knee. We want it to be nice and solid. Um, so a lot of the components of a knee are made of cobalt chrome. Um, this would be an example of a, a, of a tibial component, the part that goes in your shin bone, um, uh, a cobalt chrome tray. Um, on top of the, the part that goes in the shin bone is usually some sort of, again, polyethylene liner, um, and this would lock into the liner. Um, and then what articulates with that or what, what matches to that is some sort of femoral resurfacing. So this one I won't pass around because it has been in, in a patient, but it's, it's been sterilized. But um, it, uh, it, uh, it usually is a resurfacing of the femur. So these two mate, they don't lock together. They're just held together by your own ligaments. Um, and they allow some sort of motion to occur uh, as you bend and, and flex, uh, flex and extend your knee. Um, there's some play still in a knee, so the ligaments, even in your normal knee, you have some play. So a mechanical knee sometimes bugs people or they, they hear it. They can hear the clicking of the plastic and the metal if you really stress it or if you kind of do a little bit of motion like that. You can get it to click, um, which does bother some people. And, and it's just a, you have to have some movement in the knee or it becomes so stiff that you can't bend. Um, and then there's usually a piece of uh, plastic that we line underneath the kneecap um, or the patella, a patellar component. And all these components are usually held in place in the knee with bone cement. Um, and bone cement is very durable in the knee, and it has to do with the different kinds of stresses and different kinds of loads that are going through it as opposed to a hip. So um, cemented fixation in the knee is, is pretty much the gold standard. There is a growing... Um, 
trend towards trying to do cementless implants, and, and that is, is something that's uh, starting to happen in the knee. Um, the idea being that maybe for these very, very young patients, we can maybe get an implant that's going to last their lifetime, as opposed to even with cemented implants, still 20 to 30 years is about, about as much as you're going to get. Um, so these would be x-rays and, and a, uh, of a total knee that's done. Um, this this uh, stem component in the shin bone is a little bit longer than a normal one, but um, you, get, you get the idea of what it looks like from the front and from the side. So these, these haven't been in anybody, so I'll pass these around. Um, other replacements that we do, um, sometimes we'll do a partial knee replacement. If you've only lost the cartilage in one spot, we can replace just one spot. Um, pretty limited indications because usually people, if they're getting wear in one spot, have it somewhere else as well. Um, we can also do partial replacements in the hip of just replacing the ball or the femur side. Um, that's usually done for uh, older patients who have hip fractures. Um, and the reason being that you're putting a metal or a ceramic ball touching your own cartilage, and that can last for a few years, but eventually that metal is going to start wearing through the cartilage and people can start getting problems. So usually that's saved for very sick people who just need a surgery really quick to fix a broken hip or something of that uh, that type. Um, and so we don't have to do both parts of it. We can do about half the procedure so it's a little faster. The, the time, the um, number of people that are getting that is going down as we get better and, and faster and uh, the partial hip replacement is historically something that's done by any orthopedic surgeon who's on call with a hip fracture, but now we're starting to realize that joint replacement surgeons are probably the best people to be doing it, even for the partial hip replacements. So because we're pretty good and fast at doing the whole thing, we generally try to do the whole thing when we can, unless the patient's very sick. Um, another thing that we do are things like revising knees. So infection is a big problem. Um, loosening of Im implants if you've uh, have some sort of instability problem. And sometimes these reconstructions can get quite big to the point that we're using things like tumor prostheses where we're basically removing the entire end of the bone and replacing it with metal. Um, these, this isn't the ideal situation um, because it's a lot more stress on the implant, a lot more stress on the bone implant interface, but sometimes we have to do things like that. Um, same thing for hips. Uh, a lot of times there's problems that can happen um, and uh, they need to be revised as well. Um, you can see that some of these things are pretty catastrophic, so this would be the socket actually protruded through the pelvis into their uh, abdomen. Um, this patient is someone who, this is actually a hip replacement that was done about 30 years ago, and you can see there was a bunch of cement holding the component in place, and now it's kind of just completely falling apart. And a lot of times we have to reconstruct with these, these big uh, reconstructions where we're replacing a lot of bone with metal. So when to choose a hip replacement or when do you get a joint replacement? And, and it really comes from when you've failed the non-operative treatment options. So, um, you know, just because you've had a week of knee pain and you have some arthritis, we're not going to jump to doing a knee replacement tomorrow. Um, usually you have to, we, we want you to try some other things because a lot of people do get good relief from some of these non-operative options for a very long period of time. And if you can avoid the risk of the surgery, that's usually better. Um, Typically, the pain needs to be something that's really affecting your quality of life. and needs to be limiting you from what you want to do. If you have a little bit of soreness after you do your five-mile run, that's not really a, an indication to have a knee replacement or a hip replacement. Um, and, it, and it needs to be something that's really pretty frequent. Um, and then you also have to have that x-ray uh, arthritis in addition to the clinical pictures. So you could have knee pain, but if you have no cartilage loss, a knee replacement is not going to help you. Your pain's probably coming from something else, and if we did a knee replacement, then you'd have a painful knee with a prosthetic knee in it and the, the, all the problems that are associated with that. 
Um, so that, that is unfortunately uh, more common than, than we like. A lot of times we, we aren't able to fully uh, get rid of someone's pain, and that usually has to do with if we haven't been really careful in pinning down what is the pain coming from and what, what's gonna, uh, what are we actually fixing with a joint replacement. Um, and a lot of times I tell patients that they're going to tell me when they're ready for a joint replacement. I'm not going to tell them. Um, I can tell them when I first meet them that, you know, you have x-ray evidence of arthritis, but you're going to tell me when you can't do what you need to do and when this is really affecting you to the point that you're going to go through a surgery and a, and a not insignificant recovery. Um, some of the changes in arthroplasty, um, you know, there, there used to be this idea that there were certain patients that were too young, that you... You know, no matter how bad your hip was, no matter how bad your knee was, we're not going to do a joint replacement until you until you're 50 or 60 years old. Um, and that was because it, it's kind of a, a protecting the patient from, from themselves a little bit and from us in that we knew that these things had a lifespan to them. And every time you get it redone, it's higher risk. And we don't want people with, who are in their 60 or 50 that have an unreconstructable joint that's been revised so many times. Now we're getting a little more lax in those restrictions because our, our techniques are getting a little better, the implants are getting better, and the longevity of them is getting better. Um, and so we kind of have to balance this idea of what is their life going to be like 30 years from now versus what is their quality of life going to be for the next 15 years when they have this terrible joint. Um, there's about a 1% failure rate. If you, if you kind of combine everything together um, every year, you can say about a 1% failure rate for a joint replacement. Um, for hips, it's probably a little less than for knees. Uh, at, at about 20 years, about 90% of people, if they're still alive 20 years after their hip replacement, will still have the original parts in them. But that's still 10% of those people over that 20 years that may have had an infection, that may have had a dislocation or a fracture or loosening of the implants that have had a revision if they make it to 20 years. And then also there's kind of a change in expectations. A lot of people are coming in wanting joint replacements and wanting to get back to these high-activity lifestyles, and that, that, that is, it is definitely reasonable, and we don't restrict people from what they want to do, but you do have to understand that it's, it's like a car tire in, in a sense that it's got a tread or a life to it, and the harder you use it, um, the faster it can wear out. So if you're doing burnouts on your tires all day, you're not going to last very long versus if you're kind of being more reasonable in your, in your activities. Um, this is kind of what I was mentioning for that, that plastic. This is highly cross-linked polyethylene um, came out about, uh, it's probably about 15 years ago. Um, it was probably the biggest jump in joint replacement that's happened, and there really hasn't been a jump since that, since the uh, initiation. And, and the reason being that the old plastics that we were using had a definitive, you could say, you know, every year it's going to wear out this many uh, millimeters or, or tenths of a millimeter. Um, this highly cross-linked polyethylene is actually treated with radiation, so they radiate it. The, it kind of joins the molecules of the plastic together um, and forms these linkages that actually improve the wear characteristics of it. Um, so they started doing this, and, and it seems like this plastic doesn't wear at, an, at a measurable rate in most people for normal activities. So this has really been a game-changer from the sense that we don't know for sure because it hasn't been around that long, but we think that even in younger patients, they may be able to get away with this liner for the rest of their life doing what they want to do without wearing out, which would be a big deal. Um, it was historically this problem with the plastics wearing out that led to the whole metal-on-metal -metal problem or the, the cobalt-chrome, cobalt-chrome problem because people were trying to find alternatives to this plastic eroding. Um, and, and so that kind of led to the, the, the disaster that was metal-on-metal. Um, <clears throat> okay. 
Um, other things with arthroplasty, um, the safety of it has gotten quite good um, because we're getting better at it. We're knowing what risk factors are. We're knowing what to look out for. Um, there's really not anyone who, there's no age limit to a joint replacement. Um, it's more of uh, how old are, are you acting as opposed to how old are you from a numeric standpoint. Um, so pretty routinely, 80-year-olds and up will get joint replacements. Um, even in your 90s, you can get joint replacements if you're, if you're healthy and active enough. Um, now, hip fracture patients can come in at 99. If you break your hip and you're, you're active enough, you may get a, a hip replacement. Um, but uh, it's not always an elective thing in that situation. <clears throat> The uh, one-year mortality, if you look at these patients, is, is about the same as, as if they didn't have a hip replacement. So um, we don't think that we're, we're causing any problems by doing it in older pe people. We're trying to improve their quality of life without kind of a detriment is what we think. Um, another change that's happened in arthroplasty, and this, this probably was spurred more... Um, this was about, uh, you know, fire, I forget when it was, but it was, it was a while ago that they came out with this kind of pain as the fifth vital sign or there was a big push towards making sure patients' pain was under control. And so the initial reaction from surgeons was we'll give you more narcotics and we'll give you tons of it and you'll, you'll have your pain button. You'll just click it every time you're having pain and then you're, you'll be happy and you won't complain about pain and you'll give us good scores. That, that's kind of what the initial thing was. And then we came to find out that these narcotics, people are getting addicted to them. Uh, orthopedic surgery was one of the worst offenders in terms of the gross volume of pills because these surgeries hurt. Bone, bone surgery hurts, and they need some sort of pain relief. But if you're giving them narcotics and opioids constantly, they're eventually going to get addicted. There's a certain percentage that will get hooked on it, and then that becomes a huge problem. So now we've kind of shifted back the other direction to taking away the narcotics, but still trying to control patients' pain. So... Um, we do this, uh, the buzzword is multimodal or, or um, you know, non-opioid sparing regimens. And so we try to come at pain from many different angles. Um, pain can happen from the side of pain. It can be experienced. You can block pain at the spinal cord. You can block pain up in the brain. You can block pain um, from a molecular level at the actual end effectors. There's a lot of different ways that all these different things can kind of prevent the experience of pain. And so we try to do as many of these things as we can that kind of work together and augment each other to avoid the narcotics. Um, and so that now most people, um, you still need some, but most people are off of the, the stronger pain medicine by about one to two weeks for a hip and about a month for the knees. Um, and that's a big improvement. Um, and, and it's also been a change in expectation. A lot of patients come in wanting a joint replacement, and then if they're having any pain, they, they think it's a failure of the, the providers to be caring for them. And, and really, I try to stress that we're trying to make your pain as tolerable as you can to minimize the side effects of medications and still allow you to recover and get back to your, your therapy and your activities. Um, and, and we're all very well a role of our, our role in the opioid crisis, and, and so that it often makes for conflict between patients and, and their providers in terms of trying to do what we're, we think is going to be best in the long term while still managing the acute pain setting. Um, in general, uh, for arthritis, narcotic pain medications are, are terrible. They don't do any, they're, they're not helpful. So um, there's a big push from the orthopedic community to try and educate, especially primary care providers, to not start um, things like Norco or, or Vicodin or Percocets or Oxycodone and Oxycontin and all that stuff for arthritis because it very quickly loses its effectiveness and, if anything, is going to make you more susceptible to pain and hypersensitive to pain in the long term. So opioids for a long-term chronic pain management perspective, we're starting to understand, are very bad. 
Um, another thing that's kind of changed is um, there's a drug called transoxemic acid, or TXA, that's come about around the time of surgery that has um, pretty much eliminated the need for blood transfusions after a hip or knee replacement, so that less than 1% of people, when they have it, need a blood transfusion. Um, so people don't have to donate blood beforehand. It's just much better for the system um, and much less physiologically stressful. So that kind of helps us do those older patients. Um, really, if you can climb a flight of stairs or if you can walk across a parking lot, you're probably cardiovascularly healthy enough to have a joint replacement. That's about the amount of stress that your body's going to experience during that joint replacement. Um, other things that have changed are, are things like um, DVT prophylaxis. So blood clots are historically a big problem in orthopedic surgery because you get a big surgery, you're kind of lying still for a long time, big trauma to your system, then you're not going to be very mobile afterwards, so there's a lot of problems with blood clots. Um, believe it or not, just a baby aspirin twice a day we found is one of the most effective things to prevent that after surgery now. Um, it probably has to do some also with our rehab protocols. We're getting people up faster. We're sending people home faster. People are getting back to their lives faster because they're feeling better faster. And so that risk of the blood clot is going down. Um, but, uh, you know, in the past, people would go home with Coumadin or Warfarin um, or they'd need these, these complicated regimens. And not only does that cause problems in terms of if you have a fall, you can get a head bleed, but it also causes problems with GI, uh, stomach bleeds. It causes problems with the wound trying to heal. So all this has been a big change in, in orthopedics, switching to just, for most patients, just a baby aspirin twice a day seems to be enough to not only re, uh, pretty much almost eliminate your risk of blood clots, but also avoid some of those worst complications with the higher uh, strength blood thinners. Um, you know, dental prophylaxis is a question that we get a lot in the clinic, and, and it's um, around joint replacements. The idea being that um, with a joint replacement, it's metal in your body, or it's metal and plastic in your body. Your body cannot scrub the metal clean of bacteria. So if you get, you know, you're brushing your teeth or um, even just having a bowel movement, you have bacteria that are all every day going through your blood system, and it's your immune system's job to clear those bacteria out. Um, if for some reason one of those bacteria gets into a joint um, and your immune system doesn't get it quick enough and it starts spreading and it gets on a piece of metal, it's never coming off that metal until that metal comes out of your body. So it's a bad issue if you get an infection of a prosthetic joint um, because we just can't eradicate it. You could take antibiotics for the rest of your life and that bacteria is always going to live on that metal um, in what's called a biofilm and can come back as soon as your immune system drops or as soon as you stop taking the antibiotics. So there's, there was initially this big um, worry that anyone that had any types of procedures done needed to have antibiotics to avoid those bacteria getting on the implants. Um, we've kind of found that that's, that's probably not the case. Um, usually it's more uh, problems with the immune system than it is the burden of bacteria from one procedure. So usually we don't recommend dental prophylaxis for most patients anymore. If anything, we say maybe for the first few months afterwards when you're still healing and there's a lot of blood in the joint, but otherwise uh, we kind of have moved away from that. Um, so in general, we're not recommending that, even for dental procedures. Um, the next biggest thing that's changed is kind of the hospital stay. So in the, you know, if you go way back, people after a joint replacement would be put in a cast, stay in the hospital for weeks, just sitting there getting pain medicine. Um, now it is incredibly different. So now it is you basically walk the same day. If you're doing well enough, you could go home the same day. Um, and most people, 90% of patients, are going home the next day after surgery. Um, 
and, and that's home. That's not to a rehab center. So that's another big um, paradigm shift in a lot of patients' minds is because usually they're thinking that having a joint replacement, I need to go to a rehab, I need to have a nurse taking care of me all the time, and that's not the case. It's actually better to go home um, because not only are you a little bit forced to mobilize more, but also you're away from all the other sick people at a rehab center or at a nursing home that are going to get you sick or get you have, have you have problems. So people do better when they go home. Um, they may not, it, it's, it's anxiety provoking, and a lot of that comes down to we have to educate patients and let, you, let them know that you're going to be okay, we're always with them, we have all these platforms now to communicate with people, that people are, are much better and end up being much happier going home quickly. Um, this is, this is a little complicated, but this is kind of the protocol of things that we do for patients to get them ready to have surgery, to get them ready to have the recovery afterwards. And it comes all the way from as soon as we uh, deem you a candidate for a joint replacement, then we have to make sure you're medically optimized. Um, we have preoperative classes where you come and you learn the therapy that you're going to do. You see the floor that you're going to go to after surgery. You meet some of the nurses and the therapy staff. Um, you get your home set up ahead of time to know what you're going to need. Who are you going to need to help you? Um, we get people hooked up on these uh, applications on their phone where you can just message me or, or your surgeon directly. Um, you can message the care staff. It gives you kind of pings daily with like, hey, if you're having swelling today, that's totally normal. Or by now, you should be able to bend your knee by about 90 degrees. Like, how are you doing on that? So all these things are kind of just checking in regularly. And so for the first month or uh, month or so before and after surgery, we're constantly in communication, and, and this is like a big life event for you, and we're going to help you through it, um, even though you're not necessarily in the hospital for every minute of it. Um, so most people are going home post-op day one. They don't even see their surgeon again, usually until four or six weeks afterwards, and that's because that initial recovery period, you don't, there's nothing I'm going to do that's going to change it. A lot of it is just usually uh, reassurance, and we can now do that um, through other means. Um, Risk reduction, these are kind of, because joints are so common and we do so many of them, we can do a lot of research on things um, and figure out what, what thresholds are important and how we can get the risks of some of these complications down. So these are a lot of the, uh, they're not cutoffs, but they're, they're kind of goals that we have for patients before um, they have a joint replacement. So if you have diabetes, we want your uh, blood sugar levels to be at an acceptable level. If you're a smoker, we strongly encourage uh, no nicotine. There are a lot of surgeons who won't even operate on patients with uh, any type of tobacco uh, in their system, or nicotine, I should say, in their system. And that comes down to nicotine as a terrible vasoconstrictor, and it prevents blood flow. So if you have a trauma, you need blood flow to heal, or a surgery, you need blood flow to heal, um, or the bones to heal, or the bones to grow into an implant. Every time you smoke a cigarette, that's four hours of no blood flow through small vessels. Um, and so you're going to have a higher risk of infection. You have a higher risk of your wound breaking down. You have a higher risk of the implant not taking. Um, so, so we're pretty strict about that. Um, obesity, um, it's kind of this double-edged sword. So the, the bigger you are, the higher risk you have to have arthritis, but you're also the higher risk for having a problem after the, the treatment for your arthritis. Um, there's... Uh, you know, it's, it's a continuum. We kind of just arbitrarily say a BMI of 40, um, but we, we work with patients and, and trying to get down, and we, we don't necessarily hold them to 40 because sometimes that's not uh, not attainable. Um, and it's, it's always a discussion between a surgeon and the patient as to what kind of risks are you willing to accept as a patient 
Um, and sometimes the patients will say, I'll, I'll do anything, um, whereas, but it's also the surgeon as well. We have to kind of, part of our thing is we don't want to hurt people. And so if we know that if it's a 50% chance you're going to get a joint infection, I'm not going to do a joint on you. Um, and then chronic pain, kind of getting back to that opioids again, we try to get people down off their opioid medication because we know that if you have a surgery that's going to hurt, that's actually going to hurt. Um, and, and if you don't have an ability to control that because you're already tolerant of all these narcotics, you're not going to do well. And if you're having too much pain to mobilize, you're having too much pain to do therapy, you're not going to have as good of an outcome after your joint replacement. Um, and then substance abuse. Substance abuse is more of... Um, it comes back to that infection risk. So IV drug users especially, incredibly high rates of joint infections if they ever get a joint placed. Um, and they're also, it's, it's behavioral-related things that if you're, if you're high on crystal meth and jump off a building and your hip dislocates, that's not a good thing. Um, <clears throat> so um, this is one thing that uh, is probably in the last 10 years or so, and I just wanted to touch on this because this, this is something that a lot of patients ask about um, regarding hip replacement and its, and its surgical approach. Um, so the historical approach is, is called a posterior approach to the hip. Um, it's incision kind of on the side of your hip, and we go behind the femur and we, and we replace the joint. Um, that's been the way that it was, was done in the 70s, and it hasn't really changed much since then with the exception of now we're getting a little more soft tissue friendly and, and we're repairing things afterwards, uh, and it's kind of been marketed as this mini posterior approach. Um, but about 15 years ago or so, 10 years ago, it became more widespread, this uh, approach called a direct anterior approach, um, which instead of cutting through muscle and cutting through as much tissue or releasing muscle, um, it actually goes around muscle. And so it goes, it, it's much more soft tissue friendly is the idea. Um, so this would be the approach of a, of a direct anterior hip where you're going between um, the tensor fascia muscle and the rectus femoris muscle, and you, you kind of just move the muscles to the side and you can get straight to the hip. The reason this wasn't historically done is that it's a much more difficult procedure. It's technically more challenging and the exposure is much harder. So it involved, we had to develop certain instruments and certain tools to help us do this more reproducibly. And so now it has become more of a reproducible surgery that, that that's what we do. This is what I do for patients um, when they're able to get it. Um, and it's been shown to improve your recovery in the first six weeks. You have less pain early, uh, early post-op. Um, and we think it has to do with that preserving muscle attachments, um, not damaging certain structures. Um, and we also think it might be a more stable reconstruction, meaning that the ball can't pop out of the socket because it's a much harder position to do to dislocate from the front of the hip as opposed to the back. So, um, and I'll show that in just a second. Now, there's a, there's a caveat to this that um, in direct anterior hips are very much, uh, there's, the pessimistic view is it's a marketing ploy. Um, that uh, it, and there is definitely that aspect of it to that people are trying to get market share of patients that want to have their hip done, so they start doing anterior hips because that's what patients want. Um, but there's definitely a learning curve to it, and it is a more technically challenging surgery surgery um, that involves being trained in it. So I would say if you are going to have it done, just make sure it's someone who does it regularly, because um, you can have problems like this where patients, you know, this is a, you know, you, don't, you haven't seen a lot of X-rays, but you can kind of tell that this is the implant, this is the bone, they kind of miss the, miss the, miss the mark. Um, and this, is, this kind of comes back to some of these, these new techniques and things. So we have these specialized tables that we use to help get the, the leg into certain positions to be able to access without having to release so much muscle um, and things like that. Um, that woman would never need a hip replacement, I don't think. Uh, 
Um, whereas the older approach, you're usually on your side. It's, a, it's a, an incision. So um, another advantage of doing it um, from the front is that you can use x-ray while you're there. Because you're lying flat, it's much easier to get x-ray to see exactly where you're putting things. And orthopedic surgeons, we, we've become very reliant on immediate gratification. We want to know where things are. We want to know exactly where we're putting it, that we put it exactly where we want. And x-ray is a way to do that. Um, and it's just harder to do that when someone's on their side. You, you can't get it perfect. They're never right in the right position. Whereas when you're, you're supine or you're lying flat on your back, we can do that. And we can actually match make sure your legs are exactly the same length on x-ray. We can make sure the, cu- the uh, socket is right in the position that we want. We can make sure it's the exact right size for you. And that's, that's one of the reasons that I do uh, anterior hips besides the other reasons, is that you can get this a lot easier. Hip precautions after hip replacement is something that's, that's a little bit of a historical thing, but, but is still, still the case for, for people. And, and hip dislocations happen very frequently, uh, or not very frequently, but it's, it's not an uncommon occurrence. Um, and from a posterior hip approach, uh, it was traditionally these posterior precautions. So it's flexing your hip up, going across your body, and kind of rotating your foot away. Or, or I like to tell people the Heisman pose. So if you're kind of doing this position, um, that's when you get in trouble, or a deep flex. Or in a chair, if you have your knees together, um, that's a way that you can risk dislocating. Um, so these, these are kind of some of the activities. So deep bends. Um, bending forward at the hips instead of, uh, actually it's better to bend with your back when you have a hip replacement than, than at the hips, um, or, or rotating your leg in the wrong t- direction. Um, we've gotten away from that a little bit because there's little little changes that we've made to the, the way we're doing surgery, and we're just a little more more careful and specialized in how we're doing things, but there's still always these risks of dislocation from the back. Um, we think that the front is more stable. It hasn't really been borne out that much in, in terms of if you compare an expert who does just posterior hips to an expert who just does anterior hips, the dislocation is so, rate is so low that it's hard to compare. But in the general scheme of things, if you think of all the dislocations, and anecdotally, uh, most of the dislocations that happen are out the back or posterior. And that, and that has to do with the, the way that you dislocate an anterior hip is much harder. Um, it's, it's more of a rotate your toes almost pointing behind you and then reaching way back. Um, and so most people, when you reach way back, you're hips move with you. You can't really do that position. Um, Sorry. It's reaching like way back and and rotating your toes behind you. And it's just hard to do that position. Um, So it's, it's, you just can't do it. Um, And a lot of times on, even when we're operating on people and we're testing their stability, um, it's hard to dislocate their hip sometimes. Like we can't get it out when we're doing it from the front. Other questions and myths about joint replacement. So PRP, um, you know, stem cells, I kind of mentioned this already. Um, there's some people ask questions about rejection of the implant or metal allergies. Um, metal allergies are, it's a cutaneous phenomenon, so it's a skin allergy. Um, it has never been borne out that that's a problem that you have, you can experience from inside of a joint. Um, so it's a little bit of a touchy subject for arthroplasty surgeons because there's never been any objective evidence that anyone has ever had a metal allergy to a joint replacement. Um, there's some case reports in the literature that are probably allergies, but that we're talking like three or five patients in the history of arthroplasty that have been reported on having these severe allergies to metal. So incredibly rare. People that come in saying they have nickel allergies or, or things like that to jewelry, um, generally we, we don't 
change, but there are implants that are nickel-free. It's, it's thought to be nickel. That's usually the metal that people are reacting to. And so there are implants that are nickel-free, like, like this one is, is nickel-free. Um, it's a ceramicized metal. It just means they kind of turned it into a ceramic, so you're not getting exposed to the nickel. Um, but that's, that's never really been shown to, to even make a difference for those patients either. There was this marketing thing uh, a while ago about gender-specific knees, or like this is a knee just for, for women, or this is just a knee for men, and that, that's not a thing. It's, uh, the, the sizes are, this, there's variable sizes of everything, and we match the size to fit you. Um, it's, it's not a, there's not a difference in terms of the shape of a woman's knee than a man's knee. Um, there's also this thing about minimally invasive surgery. Um, Minimally invasive to definition to me means use as much of an incision as you need. Um, so if you're using a small incision and sacrificing what you can see or do because of just trying to be, you know, six centimeters in length as opposed to eight centimeters in length or something, um, that to me has that and actually has been borne out that that's problematic and there's higher risks associated with that. So, um, you know you're going to get as big of an incision as I needed to do your replacement. Usually for a hip replacement, it's, it's only 8 to 10 centimeters. It's not very big. Um, but that, that's something you might hear about marketing or hearing from, from different places. And then there's also this big push towards using robotics and everything medicine. Um, and so there are uh, robotic total knees and robotic total hips and, and things of that nature. It's, it's not what you think. It's not like a robot doing the joint. It's, it's literally a... It's a it's an attachment to the table. That's a that's an arm that the surgeon holds and and, and uses. So it's it's really just an extension. It's an augmentation, um, and and again, these have not been shown to be any better than uh, someone who does joint replacements for a living, and and that's all they do. So me versus a robot. There's no difference in terms of patients, in terms of what their X-rays look like afterwards, in terms of their accuracy. Um, but the robot costs a million dollars. So that's the difference. Um, <laughs> Uh, and the same goes with computer-assisted and navigated technology. So none of that stuff has shown to make a difference, um, but there is a big push for it right now. In the future, there probably is going to be a role. I mean, every industry has eventually moved towards robotics and, and had that uh, a part of it, but as a surgeon augmentation tool is probably where it's going to be as opposed to the robot making the decisions and the robot doing things for a joint. There's just too many uh, little things involved. Um, bad things can happen after a joint replacement. Uh, we kind of touched on a little bit, but things like dislocation or uh, infection are definitely things that happen, and they're devastating. Um, we deal a lot with them here. It's not it's not ours, thankfully. Usually, um, it's usually referrals. But um, you know, you will. We do. It, it's not a something that's gone away. Um, we're getting better in terms of. Pretty much every complication in, in hip and knee replacements is going down. Less loosening, less dislocations, less um, you know, less uh, implant-related problems. The only thing that we haven't really gotten as good at is, is still reducing the infection rate, and that's kind of just been this persistent. About two percent of people get an infection after joint replacement. Um, we think it's, you know, we, we explain it to ourselves as we're doing it on sicker and sicker patients as time goes on. So we are doing, you know, we, we do hear all the time people on dialysis or we have transplant patients that are getting joint replacements. And so you're going to take on a certain amount of risk when you start doing it in a wider uh, group of people that you would definitely have held off on before. Um, but it's still a little bit disheartening that we can't get that number down to zero. So questions in just a second, but just in conclusion, you know, hip and knee replacement is a rapidly expanding thing. Um, we have really good outcomes. I, I think hip replacement is the best surgery that's ever 
come out. Um, people do spectacular. Um, the recovery is getting easier for people. Um, and then there's this, just this idea that we're trying to reduce risk with patients, and it's kind of a, it's a, it's a team effort. We have to be on their side. They have to be on our side. And, and we kind of reduce the risks that we can and then accept the ones that we can't change um, and just understand that there is this level of, of, of uh, a percentage of people that are going to have a problem, and we're going to do our best to avoid it. So with that, um, I, I welcome any questions. Start over here. Uh, sorry, I can't. In the A's hat. Uh, two things. One, I just want to clarify again the question. On the dental procedure, the antibiotics, were you saying, for example, we had a tooth implant? I know what I've had it before, we take antibiotics. Are you saying it's okay to do that or not okay? So it's, it's okay to skip antibiotics if you're ha- – oh, sorry, so I'll repeat the question. The question was, is it okay to take antibiotics at dental procedures, or is it, is it that you don't have to take it? And the, and the answer is you do not need antibiotic prophylaxis or antibiotics when you have a dental procedure done. So there's no good data that says that if you have a dental procedure done, you're at a higher risk for getting an infection of your joint. So the uh, Orthopedic Academy and the hip and knee surgeon group has come out with – yeah. What about the infection? Oh yeah, yeah. You know, you can take antibiotics. There's no problem. You can do whatever you want for other things, but for the hip or knee replacement, you don't need to take it. So he was he was asking, can you take it for like an anti- for the abscess? Yeah. So the question is um, regarding cortisone shots. If there's a limit or a life life amount that you can get in a lifetime, um, the uh, the the cortisone shots are something that the the limit comes down to. Um, when you're putting steroid in a joint, what you're doing is you're basically knocking out the immune system in the joint and you're reducing the inflammation in the joint. And so it's that uh, the inflammation comes from cartilage damage and it releases these chemicals that the body responds to and you get inflammation and that's what causes the pain and things. So the steroid's knocking that out. Um, what it's also knocking out when it knocks out the immune system is your ability to fight infection. So um, when you get a lot of them repetitively, you kind of are really asking to have a problem from an infection standpoint. It's also not good for the tendons and the muscles to be exposed to steroids repetitively because it can weaken them. So you can get problems with tendon ruptures or, or things like that if you're constantly exposed to steroid. Um, so usually we limit it to about once every four months, um, three to four months if you're, if you're really pushing it. Um, and But it can be three to four months forever, um, you can have that. There's no like, oh, I've got my 10th steroid, I'm done. Um, it's, you can have that forever. It's just usually the response also kind of goes down with each one. So first time you get a steroid injection, you got kind of moderate arthritis. You might get six months of good relief in that joint. You might be feeling good. Second time, it might be three months, then it might be two weeks, and then it's not going to be anything. So usually you get diminishing returns with each injection. Um, but, it, but it comes down to that infection piece that's the uh, reason that you can't – infection and, and tendon piece that comes down to why you can't just do it every week. If it's lasting every week, why can't it get every week? That's why. Um, there's also um, – we're coming out with more evidence that steroids and things are not great for the remaining cartilage. Um, so if you have very mild arthritis, it might not be the best idea to get a steroid injection because it might not be good for the cartilage that's actually left. Um, in the hips especially, there's we're, we're starting to understand that hip steroid injections are maybe not a great idea. Um, and that comes down to there's these cases of people that have mild arthritis to get a hip injection, and then within a month, their hip is just disintegrated. So this rapidly progressive osteoarthritis, and the only associating factor with that is a lot of times steroids. So 
we're, it's kind of an evolving thing. Some people still get them, and it gives them good relief, and I offer it to patients, and sometimes we use it for a diagnostic thing to make sure it's the hip that's actually hurting. We give you an injection, has the steroid, has some numbing medicine in it. If your hip's numb, you have no pain, your pain's gone, it's probably the hip that was causing the pain. It's not your back. So sometimes it's useful test and a useful thing, but um, it's, it's, it is, it's in our toolbox, but... Um, becoming a varying utilization of it, um, at least for me. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we'll start back here. No, it's not general. So the question was uh, about ballet dancers and people with high ranges of motion, how that affects their hips, and, and I'm guessing their chance of needing a hip replacement in the future. And then the other question was, when we're putting in these implants, is it a gentle thing? And the answer is definitely no. Um, so um, it's a very barbaric surgery. Um, you know, we're using saws, we're using mallets, we're, we're hitting things as hard as we can. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very brutal, like, it's, it's a physical procedure. Um, so what, one thing that's uh, becoming a, a bigger bigger thing that we have to tell patients about is we used to put everyone to sleep. Everyone would get a general, you're asleep, you don't, you, you know, you're not going to say anything, you're not going to know anything that's going on during surgery. We now do more and more, we try to do patients with spinals, so they're just numb from the waist down, and then they get some medicine that they're kind of a little bit out of it, but some people aren't completely out of it, and so they will, they will still hear what's going on, and it's, it sounds like a construction site, and, and so it's, it's disheartening when you're hearing, bam, 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 and you're getting shook, and you don't really know what's going on, so it's a little bit of a problem. But yeah, it's, it's very brutal. Um, to the ballet question, um, there's not really a, an association with um, certain sports later developing arthritis. Um, there is, uh, I'll step back a little bit, there is an association with um, certain inline sports, so like hockey, soccer, um, things like that where you're kind of more inline and developing what's called a cam lesion or, or femoral acetabular impingement. Um, and it's a, we think it might be a developmental change in the shape of your hip. Those people may be more prone to arthritis, but we don't have, it's kind of a more recent thing that we kind of are describing and seeing, so we don't have the longitudinal ability to say this caused this. It may just be we're seeing it and it wasn't the cause. But um, for ballet dancers and things like that, um, I do worry when I do a hip replacement for someone who's like a yoga instructor or a big ballet person because if they are very flexible, they may be able to get into those positions to get in trouble with the hip coming out. And so sometimes we do do a little, we, there's, there's some different implants and things that we can use that make it harder to dislocate or um, it, that's, but that's a little bit of a different discussion. Yeah, good question. Yeah, yeah so the question is, are glucosamine and chondroitin um, prevent, do they have any, like, uh, preventive uh, power or treatment power? And, and the, um, the answer is, uh, in dogs, yes. In humans, no. <laughs> so the, the, most of the studies were done on animal studies, and they actually, in dogs, if you give dogs glucosamine and chondroitin, their arthritis gets better, they have no pain, they do really well. Um, and it kind of comes back down to the same thing as, like, we've cured cancer in my, mice. Like, we could cure any cancer in a mouse, but we can't in humans yet. So there's certain things that we just don't understand about the human biology. Um, and it's the same kind of thing with that glucosamine chondroitin that we don't have. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to have the same effect. Now, anecdotally, people swear by it. And so I would say if you're taking it and it's working, I'm not going to tell you to stop taking it. But if you're not taking it and it's going to be a financial burden to you to take it, I would recommend against it.
Yeah. The, uh, the question is, if he had a hip replacement 14 years ago and was getting x-rays for about four years but hasn't since then. Should he come back and, and get, get it checked? Um, I usually tell patients that uh, the times that I would get an x-ray are at you know, the initial post-op visit at about a month, and that's just to get a kind of baseline, make sure everything's kind of settling in and growing incorrectly. The next time I would get an x-ray is at one year, um, just to see that initial period. Is it, are you having any wear and problems, or, or am I seeing changes in the bone that I'm worried about? And then after that, it's kind of more variable. So usually I'll say every one to three years you should be getting an x-ray. Um, and the reason is, uh, and, that, and that's forever, is, is for one to three years. The reason is um, that most problems that happen with a hip replacement in terms of loosening, in terms of wear, we can see them happening and we can intervene before it becomes a catastrophe. So if, if you wear through the plastic um, and you start having that ceramic touching the metal, it just blows up the hip. It, it's a really bad problem. Whereas we can usually see that plastic getting thin, and you know you may not be having symptoms from it, but we can say, hey, that's getting really thin. We should probably switch that plastic out. And that surgery is much easier than having to go replace everything in the hip. Um, and so for that reason, I would say it, it's probably a good idea. Now, you can probably space it out to every three to five years and, and things like that. And we may find out that this new plastic is so good that if you haven't worn in you know five years, you're good for 50. Um, that's what the data is actually looking like it may be. And so that might change. But for now, we still recommend people get seen regularly, um, especially for knees. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, the question is, um, someone went overseas to India to have a, a, a procedure that was called a hip resurfacing, um, and, and why Americans weren't doing it, and now we are. Um, the, 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 the difference is, so the implant for a total hip is going inside of the bone, and it is replacing marrow. Now, the amount of marrow that it's replacing is, is essentially minuscule, so your body makes that up other places within a week. That's not a problem for you. You can have both hips replaced. You can have both knees replaced with stems on the knee going up inside the bone and down in the tibia. You will have no change in your blood count levels. Your body is able to recover in other places, mostly in the pelvis. Um, so that is not a problem. The, the, the hip resurfacing surgery that, that your friend got in India um, that was um, around the metal metal time. So hip resurfacing, the idea was that instead of cutting the bone and having an implant go inside the bone, it was kind of a cap on the ball. So you just put a cap on the ball, and then you did the socket side, and you just had this kind of cap and, 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 um, and shell. Uh, the problem was that, that in order to have that big ball and the skinny shell, you couldn't have a plastic in between, so it had to be a metal-metal articulation, and those metal-metal ones, as we know, had problems. So there's a couple uh, resurfacing implants that are still used and done that have had good track records, and they're almost, uh, almost exclusively in larger men, and that has to do with the size of the sock and the size of the ball, but pretty much anyone else, those implants have been recalled, and, and we generally don't recommend them anymore because, again, we've gotten back to this new plastic that seems to have no problem and seems to be lasting very long, that we don't need to have those uh, metal risks. We can get the same outcome with a less risky procedure. So I hope that answers your question. Uh, yeah. So the question is what, what uh, about stem cells in the knees and other injection options that might be available for, for the knees. Um, you could have a whole talk on this, and they actually, I think Dr. Lansdowne did the other week, but the um, the... Most of the early data with stem cells and platelet-rich plasma, those are the two um, that have come out, are very 
preparation-specific, patient-specific, and we just don't have a good idea of who to put it in, when, what the response is going to be. So most of the um, studies that are, that are out there showing benefit are industry-sponsored and are very biased studies that don't usually have placebo controls. Um, so they, you know, take it as you will. But there's anecdotal, people anecdotally swear by it. Um, for most of, uh, most of us here at this institution, we are not offering it. We don't do it because there isn't any good evidence that it makes a difference, and it's very, very expensive. Um, other alternative injections, um, there's things called hyaluronic acid. It's like an oil change for your knee. It's a protein that's normally in your knee. Um, it's, a, it's like a viscous fluid like oil, um, and it, we do use that. It has a little bit better evidence, and it probably has to do with the anti-inflammatory properties of it again. Um, but again, that's, we're talking orders of magnitude less in cost than, um, than PRP or steroids, and it's also low risk. So um, that, that's probably more of the reason that we do it. Um, we don't have a magic bullet yet for arthritis. Um, in stem cells, there's some good centers. Stanford's doing a study on early arthritis. So we're talking very early arthritis. You have a little bit of cartilage damage. What happens if we put this specific type of stem cell into your knee? Is that going to slow the progression? So there's some good studies being done now, but it's way too early to know who or when. Um, one of the problems with a lot of these stem cell problems is that as you get older, um, your number of stem cells goes down and the viability of them and the kind of potency of them goes down. So the people that need it the most have the least of it. So it, it's, it's kind of hard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the question was, um, you know, for where we call it wear and tear arthritis, but some of the other lecturers, and, and, and it is true that we don't have a direct correlation between if you ran 300 miles in your lifetime, you're going to get it. It's not, it's not kind of that direct correlation. Um, I think wear and tear is a little bit of a simplification in all honesty, and, and, and there is a, um, there's definitely a genetic component to it, and we don't know what it is. It's probably a ton of different genes that have to do with your cartilage structure. Um, we know that a lot of people that get arthritis also have what's called crystal and arthropathy, which is like uh, pseudogout or uh, calcium pyrophosphate crystals that kind of deposit in the joint that's bad for the, the cartilage. So there's a lot of different things that, that go into it. But you're absolutely right that activity in and of itself is actually healthy for cartilage. So cartilage gets its, its food from loading. So as you load it, it pulls water and the fluid from the joint into the cartilage, and that's how it, it remains healthy. So if you look at a marathon runner's knee versus a couch potato's knee, the marathon runner has more thick, healthy cartilage, even though they're using it and wearing it more. Um, so it, it's not, wear and tear is not the exact term, it's just probably the easiest simplification for us. Um, but, but, you, but again, I would tell people that just because you ran 100 miles and your brother ran 100 miles, you got terrible OA and your, your brother didn't? I, I can't explain that. So yeah. uh, the question is, if you have some of your meniscus taken off, should you, uh, is, is running good for it or should you stay off of it? And, and the, the, it gets back to um, meniscus surgery is a little bit different, but the meniscus is a, a joint um, load dissipator. Um, so when you do lose it, you do progress faster. We don't know... Um, if that's because when you had the meniscus tear, you also injured the cartilage, or is it that we did a procedure on you and that wasn't great for the cartilage, or is it because you're loading the cartilage more and, and we don't know? Yeah, yeah, I don't, we don't have an answer for that. Yeah, uh, they don't have a hip replacement, I can tell you that. Uh, the question was, um, she's seen people that can kind of, uh, contortionists that can do crazy things with their, with their hips or rotate it all the way around um, and what's going on there. Um, that's... Um, 
almost undoubtedly not a hip replacement. It's, it's probably an, a normal hip um, that just has crazy laxity of the ligaments. So there's, there's ligaments and, and tendons all around a, a joint, and you can get um, certain people have uh, genetic conditions where those ligaments are very stretchy or elastic, and they can just get stretched to incredible proportions, and then you can get these crazy positions. Um, but I would never do a joint replacement in that person probably because they would dislocate. The, the mechanical joint just doesn't have the same um, uh, stability as your native joint for the hip. The question is what causes scar tissue after knee replacement and how do you prevent it? Um, the, uh, the simplest answer is that um, so scar is your body's response to trauma and everybody has a different kind of scar building capacity. Um, we know that uh, in a knee, for example, that if you don't move it after you've had a trauma, you will get stiff. And that's because the scar tissue is forming. And that if you come out of surgery and you start bending your knee fully all the way out and all the way forward, you're not going to get scar tissue that forms. But that's often very painful. Um, and so there's this, um, there, uh, the thing is called, it's called arthrofibrosis is the term for it. And it is, again, it's one of these things that we don't have an answer for you. I can't tell you 100% for every patient why they get it. But some people are just predisposed to it. So if they have it on one knee, they might get it on the other knee. Um, and then there's a lot of factors that go into it. After a knee replacement, some of it could be the knee's not in correctly, that you're having pain because it's not balanced or it's unstable. You could be having um, tracking problems with your patella that make it hurt when you bend. So then you don't bend, then you get stiff. Um, other reasons might be you have an infection, actually, and that's why you get stiff. Or you're just someone who a lot of people, when they form scar, their scar becomes almost like bone. And um, th th those people are very hard to treat. Yeah. Um, sorry, I don't have a perfect answer for you because there isn't one yet. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the long-term data is, is really hard because the average age of someone getting a joint replacement is in the mid-60s. So, um, you know, it, it, you're, you're already selecting for a different population when you start getting these super long follow-ups. So you're, you're selecting a population that's younger when they had their joint replacement and usually more active as a result. So there is a little bit of a, a difference in terms of what their longevity might be versus someone who's 80 years old and, and just kind of is, is doing daily activities as opposed to running on it or, um, you know, hiking, doing, doing stressful activities. So it's a little bit of a hard question to answer. The 30-year data is about 80%, so it, it stays pretty high, but it, it does, it tapers off the longer you go. Um, it, it's, the biggest failure rate is in the first few months, um, and that's from things like infection and, and problems like that. Um, they're usually more patient-related issues. So if you're a dialysis patient who has diabetes, who had had a transplant and all these other things, you're a setup for an infection. That's usually going to happen early. Um, but there's a kind of a, a just a, a curve that just doesn't ever flatten out. That you're kind of always going to maybe have to have it revised for some reason or another. Uh, what is the difference between hyaluronic acid and hyaluronin? I, I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I don't think that. Uh, I th actually, is that the brand name for one of the injectables? That might be what it is. It I think that's a brand name. Yeah, it probably is. Yeah, hyaluronic acid is the. What's that? Hyaluronic yes. Yeah, sometimes. Um, the hyaluronic acid is the generic term. There's, it's called Euflexa or Synvisc or I think Hyaluron is, is one of the names for it. Um, those are just the brand names for the same molecule. Could I repeat what I said about running and joint damage? Um, so running is not bad for your joints. Um, it, well, uh, back up a little bit. Um, 
running, uh, so loading your joints is healthy for the cartilage, and your cartilage thrives when it's being um, repetitively loaded. Um, now, there's, a, there's an extreme to everything, right? So um, there's a certain point that if you're pushing through the normal amounts that the cartilage can take, that it becomes bad for it. And, and we don't know what that is. Everybody's different. Usually the people that are ultra-marathoners don't necessarily have a higher rate of arthritis than people that aren't. Um, and it it's probably comes back to all this comes back to is there's something in your genetic code that makes your cartilage a little different than your neighbor's, and, and that's probably what it's coming down to. And it wouldn't have mattered what you were doing. Um, but, but we don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Her question is about hip resurfacings and if they're... Uh, is it, if they're lower cost and things like what's the long-term effects? Um, hip resurfacing is uh, probably rightfully so a dying surgery because it it's a bigger exposure to do it. You have to have a huge incision to be able to get the, fe- the femur exposed without damaging the blood supply to it. Um, and so it's it's a much bigger operation and actually a harder recovery than hip replacements now. Um, and the benefit of it, of keeping that small amount of bone, is essentially minuscule. That's not how hip replacements fail, is that little extra bone that we're taking. Um, so in the U.S., it's a very rare patient that's getting it. And usually they're only getting it because they want that metal-on-metal bearing because they're still worried about wearing. Um, and so it's almost exclusively done in 40- or 50-year-old larger men um, and that, that, are, that are super active. Um, and there's only a very few surgeons in the country that still do it and are willing to accept that risk of the metal-metal problem. Um, in terms of cost, I think it's pretty much equiv- equivalent to a total hip replacement. So, and, and another thing to know is that, like, as a surgeon, I don't see any of the implant costs. come. Like, I, I don't get that money. No one that puts in the implants sees a difference in the implant cost directly. So um, there's no benefit to using a cheaper implant usually. Yeah, the question is about synovitis versus arthritis and kind of what the different treatments might be or how, how to approach the, the two differently. Um, synovitis is is, a, is another one of these catch-all terms that just means inflammation of the joint lining. Um, it can happen for a number of different reasons. Typically, when you think of synovitis, it's more of a reaction. It's probably more in that inflammatory category of symptoms. So sometimes it's coming from... Uh, like a crystalline arthropathy, like a gout or a pseudogout. Sometimes it's coming from a rheumatoid or, or, or something like that. Um, it's, it's very rare to have a specific disease of the synovium, and those are usually actually in the category of, like, tumors. Um, and so that in and of itself is, is sometimes a different thing. Now, it's, it's very uh, case-specific about what to do for those, so I, I don't exactly have a great explanation for you, for you, but usually arthritis or the loss of the cartilage does also cause irritation of the joint lining, so you do sometimes get a synovitis in reaction to the arthritis, um, but it's usually only those rare medical conditions that a synovitis is then going to secondarily cause an arthritis. Yeah, I mean, so the question is, someone was saying that the synovitis is more the cause of the pain than the arthritis, and, and um, Maybe I don't I don't have an answer for that, but but I mean, it all comes down to like what's causing the pain is is if you're really specific about it, the pain is coming from inflammatory cytokines that are coming out of the cells that are then affecting the pain receptors. And so if you really want to get down to it, yes, the synovitis is probably causing the pain, but what caused the synovitis? Maybe the arthritis. I don't I don't know specifically for your case.
The question is, how do I make sure the legs come out the same length? Um, for the uh, for the knee, um, it's not it's not a problem. Um, for knees, it's not a problem, and, that, and the reason for that is that the ligaments on the side of your knee, the MCL and the LCL, and, and a lot of the stabilizing structures, we don't touch, and so those are what are kind of dictating. You know, we're putting your knee into the same tension that you started with, and so those ligaments are going to define your length. Um, for a hip replacement, it is a little bit easier um, to have problems, and the uh, the reason is that we're basically dissociating your leg from the pelvis, and so depending on how much metal or how big of a ball or how whatever we can we can lengthen it or shorten it or, or have problems. So um, that goes back to a little bit the, um, the one of the reasons I do it on uh, anterior approach with supine is that I can take an X-ray and I can look at your other side or I can look at your pre-op X-ray and I can then match you to exactly where you started. So we can actually get a film and kind of draw a line across the pelvis, make sure your pelvis is flat, look at both femurs, make sure they're the same length. Um, so we can do that kind of fine tuning. Um, in surgery, if you're not using X-ray to do that, there's other techniques of doing it. It has to do with how much you resected, replacing exactly what you resected. So there's tricks to doing that. There's a tension to the leg that if you lengthen it, it starts getting tighter. So you can do certain maneuvers to see how tight the leg feels. Um, and then uh, you know, there's other things, just kind of measures that you can do feeling the patient's leg. But it is much, it's a little bit more of a nuanced art if you're not using some sort of objective measure. Um, and that's why I like the extra. The question is, do insurance companies ever, ever turn down hip or knee replacements? Um, yeah, uh, they do. Um, the um, it's usually so with like Medicare, for example. Medicare has very specific criteria of what you need to have tried or what you need to have documented being tried or what needs to be present to be qualified for a hip or a knee replacement. Um, so that's a pretty easy one. Some of the private insurers do have different thresholds and different criteria, and a lot of times it has to do with the patient's age and things like that. But um, it's it's usually not a um, I wouldn't see that as necessarily a bad thing. Usually they're trying to make sure that we're not doing a replacement in someone who doesn't need it, um, but it can go too far sometimes. But usually it just has to be the doctor kind of uh, talking to the insurance company as to why we think it's recommended. If someone's lost their MCL, uh, their medial collateral ligament, is that a contraindication to a knee replacement? The answer is no. Um, there's different types. It's a contraindication to doing a normal knee replacement with the implants that I was showing you guys, but um, there are different implants that are able to uh, replace the ligaments of your knee and take on some of that side-to-side -side stress. Um, so it's not, it's not a problem. I'm doing two of them tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so I, I will take a couple more questions maybe outside if you guys have some, but um, thank you for coming, and I hope you guys enjoy it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.